This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Good morning and welcome to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis and with me today is Joe Lample from Growing a Greener World TV. And I am just absolutely happy to have you because Joe is one of the most dynamic people that I know. He goes all over the world traveling. Um, he's done, you did a show on DIY for a long time? DIY Network, yes. Fresh from the Garden. Mm-hmm. And you've been on the Today Show yep. on the Weather Channel. Yep. Where else have you been? Good Morning America. Um, Fox, you know, just a number of them. And you're right fresh back from the Garden Writers Symposium in Pittsburgh. Yes. And you came home with something really, really special, didn't you? Oh, you're talking about the awards. Yes. Yes. I did. I had a couple of awards that came home in my suitcase, which was quite an honor, especially when you're considering that the people that are giving you those awards are your peers and they're, you know. That's a tough audience. It is. A, it's a very tough crowd and, and there's tough competition. And you didn't just bring home a couple of awards. You brought home two gold awards. Yeah. You can't get any better than that. <laughs> <laughs> so so tell us what the awards were for and tell us about the show. Okay. Well, um... I'll tell you about the show first, and that well, the awards will make a little more sense. So Growing a Greener World is a national television series that's in its fifth season on PBS, and we're approaching our 100th episode. And the premise of the series is that we travel the country to tell the stories of people and places doing great things for the planet through organic gardening, farm-to-table, um, canning and preserving, you know, sustainable living, basically. And uh, we love to just make people aware of what other people around the country are doing and show that it's accessible and it's not intimidating or overwhelming and we do that uh, we visit a lot of urban farms and organic farmers and um, backyard gardeners and rooftop farmers and chefs and it's a very dynamic show which is um, one of the reasons I think we, we picked up a couple of awards for our series and the two awards that we won this year were for um, Best Website, which for us is a real honor because when we created this series on television, we also recognized the fact that not everybody watches television to uh, absorb their media. You know, sometimes they want to just listen. Sometimes they want to read. Sometimes they want to watch it on a mobile device. In fact, the audience that we were really targeting is not your traditional gardening audience because – you know, there's there's not enough shows out there of the traditional nature, but there aren't any shows out there that really seem to appeal to a younger audience who may not even know about gardening, but they're into food or they're into green living. So our series was focusing on more than just gardening, but always bringing them back to gardening. But we had to do it in a way that was exciting to a younger audience. So we kind of created a hipper style, more dynamic camera angles, a younger set of uh, guests and guest host so um, the website we knew we had to focus a lot on that because people want to really get into the web and so we won a gold award for our website related to the television that's fantastic I love your website and I love that we we don't get your show Growing a Greener World here in Georgia yeah tell me about it in our part of the world so when I want to watch it I have to watch it on my computer and I gotta say, Joe, I hate watching TV on my computer, yeah. but I will watch your show because it is dynamic, Thank and you. you go all over. You are into some of the most amazing places where you'd never expect to see a garden. Well, it's true, and we 
thank goodness we get access to all the places that we try to go. But you know, part of the reason why we uh, we find these places is because, along with myself, my entire crew, you know, we're like-minded people, and so this is what we love to do. You know, we're into this kind of stuff, so we're in the know, and we're reading about things that come up all the time in our email streams and and publications or wherever. So. We're aware of these things, and and kind of the joke in house for us is that uh, you know if you hear it on NPR today, it was a growing a greener world episode last year, because <laughs> we think a lot of the stories that come out on the news today they they got you know we could be totally wrong on this, but we really kind of halfway think it's true. We think a lot of the news stories of today they saw first on our series. So tell me what some of the fun places you've been recently. Oh man. Um, well, we love going to Seattle, and we go a lot because there's so many great stories out of there. And we just uh, we, we're going again next week to do some more stories. The next uh, series we're going to do is on uh, I think it's called Urban Farm Chicks or something like that. Urban Farm Chicks. Well, the thing you know, urban farming is really, yes. really, really popular these days, and it's a young audience. But within that young audience, it's an it's amazing how many females are getting involved in it, and they're really leading the way. They're pathfinders in this new industry that's developed and so there's a couple standouts and they happen to both be in Seattle so we're going to feature them uh, this coming week one of the things that we got back from uh, a couple a month ago or so was in New York and it was upstate New York and it's a uh, it's a school technically because they're within the New York public school system but it's a huge farm it's a place that handles or works with some of the most medically challenged children and young adults in the state, albeit even really the country, but they happen to be in New York. And they're, um, they're high on the autism spectrum disorder. So this location um, has a 100-acre certified organic biodynamic farm and all kinds of things related to nature-based learning. And the reason why we went up there was because it was right down our strike zone for you know talking about whole real clean food and doing it or growing it organically but the storyline for this one was the fact that how important nature-based learning is and the impact that it has in a positive way on people that you would look at and think these people can't even be functional when you look at them but you put them into an environment where they're farming and gardening and connected with nature and they come to life and suddenly they're doing things that you had no idea that they could do and you build on that and then you on top of that, you feed them the food that they've grown that's clean and organic and it works with their system and their body responds to it. And when their body responds to it, they become more productive physiologically, psychologically. It's amazing. And so we, we captured that story. And I have to say it's probably one of the most moving stories we've ever done. It's not, it hasn't aired yet, but it's a, it's a great story. I'm going to look. I'm gonna really look forward to that one because I think that Somebody coined the phrase nature deficit disorder Mm -hmm. with our children now. When I was growing up, and I'm sure when you were growing up, we were outside all the time. That was just part of what we did. Yep. If if we were reading, we were probably under a tree reading, mm. or kind of watching the ants, or <laughs> you know all that stuff. Make seeing pictures in clouds. Indeed. And kids don't have that anymore. Right. And I think a lot of the problems that we're seeing with kids with various deficits. Uh, attention deficit disorder, things like that. I think that's related to taking them out of their their planet. It is. We've got to get kids back growing. They're they're way too comfortable with their devices. 
you know, and they don't get outside. And my, I'm, I'm, thank God we live on a farm not far from uh, just, you know, north of Atlanta, and uh, we've got that opportunity. And even with that opportunity, you know, I've got one teenage daughter that tends to spend more time inside, and thank goodness I have my other daughter who's out there all the time. So I need to try to find that happy medium. But you're right. It's too easy to just kind of acquiesce into those devices right in front of our face and forget that there's a whole new world outside our door. Um, you mentioned some other trips that you've been taking around the world. Did you see anything in Pittsburgh that, that caught your eye in the way of gardening? There were, there, were, I, I, there were beautiful gardens in Pittsburgh. In fact, I'd never really explored the gardens around Pittsburgh. But the communities, one particular town, uh, Swickley, which is just, you know, 30 minutes outside of Pittsburgh proper, uh, breathtaking gardens. It seems like every house had a beautiful garden. So it's almost like, how do you get anything done? Because you want to see every one. And we were, you know, quickly touring the gardens. Um, And it's a place I could easily go back to, to see more and film more. But we have to also keep in mind the format of our show is not so much a garden travelogue show where we're just walking through somebody's garden and talking about the plants they put there. Our story is more about of the gardener or the farmer and what they're doing by using the garden, you know, to impact the world in a positive way. Give me an example. What have you seen? What else have you seen? You mentioned rooftop gardens. Yeah, rooftop gardens. Well, well, one place in New York, uh, in fact, in Brooklyn, on top of a former um, auto factory is a, a place called Brooklyn Grange. And so there is uh, a basically the equivalent of one acre of growing space that it was just a roof until these young farmers decided, you know, that's a lot of space where we could be growing food. And downtown Brooklyn, you know, there's not a lot of places to grow food. You know, it's wall-to-wall concrete. So they um, went up there. They assessed the structural integrity of the, of the roof. They brought in engineered soils, which are very light, but they need to retain enough moisture and still drain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they uh, they now farm up there to the point where they're, they're harvesting over 20,000 pounds of fresh produce every growing season from that one acre one of acre? space. One acre? Yes. Wow. Yeah. And the beauty of this is not only are they figuring this all out and making it successful, but they're also providing access to fresh produce to people that live in the community. So rather than... than the residents getting their food from 15 to 2,000 miles away, they're getting it now from blocks away, and it's organic. And on top of that, the farmers are making their um, their growing methods an open book. So they're sharing this information with anybody that wants to have it. So this this these systems can be replicated on any rooftop, not only in the country but around the world. And that's what we need more of. And that's why we love telling these kind of stories because it's the people that are giving back all for the betterment of you know mankind and this environment. And you've got to figure that parts of Brooklyn – I've been in Brooklyn before. And parts of Brooklyn, besides being totally concrete, a lot of it is not very wealthy either. And there aren't very many grocery stores. No. So, so there are so many areas in the city that are food deserts. Yes. And having the food produced right there has got to be – just absolutely incredible. Now, for twenty thousand pounds, is that um, is are they mostly growing greens? Well, actually, they're growing um, a lot of tomatoes. They have tons of tomatoes plants growing, and you know they've got squash and cabbage and you know the heavier fruit laden produce plants. 
Uh, but there's plenty of greens. I mean, gosh, they sell to restaurants tons of lettuce. I mean, they're growing all kinds of greens. So yes, to your question, but it's a diverse it's a diverse array of crops. Now, is most of this area covered, or is it? it none open? of it is covered. It's all in the open. It's all in the open. The challenge is the wind. You know, when you go sure. up high, it you know above the roof lines of these other buildings around it, you've got wind. And so I even asked that question. I said, "What's your biggest challenge with growing up here?" And the one that came to mind was not so much the pest and diseases, but it's the fact that you know you've got tomato indeterminate tomatoes growing, and everything you think everything's staked properly when you leave for the day, and, and then that whoop. night there's a windstorm, and you come back the next day, and all the tomatoes are on the ground. And, and, of course, up in the air like that and in the city, you have the wind getting funneled through all the buildings. So it's even worse, isn't it's it? Exa- it exacerbates the problem. I, what's the name of the place? Brooklyn Grange. Brooklyn Grange. Brooklyn I will Grange. I will get that up on the website for those people, yeah. those of you that would like to hear it. I know a lot of our readers l- listen to Facebook. And we'll be talking about that and other gardens that Joe has seen right after this break. Quick Stakes. That's Q-U-I-K steaks are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of quick steaks. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's quick steaks, Q-U-I-K steaks, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Today's consumers find themselves faced with a greater variety of choices than ever before, both in the food they eat and the information they receive about that food. Feedstuff's Food Link was created to provide you with a balanced source of information for making decisions about your family's balanced diet. Visit FeedstuffsFoodLink.com to learn about your food directly from the source, the people who work every day to provide it. FeedstuffsFoodLink.com, connecting farm to fork. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and with me today is Joe Lample from Growing a Greener World, TV show that airs in, what, 49 states, Joe? Yeah, pretty on, much. On you know, it's a Every- little bit of a moving target, but 48, 49 states. And you can also listen to it online if you aren't privileged enough to get it in your state. And Joe, before we were talking about the rooftop garden in mm-hmm. Brooklyn, right. and and that just is mind-boggling to me that they are uh, there is a place in Brooklyn up on a roof that is growing food that's feeding the neighborhoods and is feeding the restaurants right there. Yeah. How fresh can produce be when it comes down a couple of flights of stairs? <laughs> uh, that that's just amazing. Yeah. And, of course, the whole trend now for restaurants, they the chefs want fresh food. Absolutely. What else are you seeing? Well, um, you know, there's a real emphasis on uh, heirloom. You know, people want people want to get back in touch with our history. And, and a great way to do that, of course, is with food and heirloom food. You know, not these new varieties that, you know, our, our predecessors never had access to. People want to really connect back to that. And the flavors that you get with some of these wonderful traditional varieties can't be that, that have been bred out because yeah. the, of the need for shipping. Yes, yeah, exactly. The, like like the tomato that they bred so that you could drop it from you know shoulder height and have it bounce and not break. Well, 
Can I just speak to that for a sure. second? Um, have you read the book Tomato Land by Barry Eastbrook? No, I haven't. Uh, award-winning New York Times best-selling author was driving down the road in Florida, one of those long straight stretches, mm-hmm. following a, 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 a an open-air semi-tractor trailer full of these green balls, completely full. And he's he's driving behind it. And he's going, "What is that? You know, what are those?" He couldn't figure it out. And one fell out of the truck, and he watched it roll down the road at highway speeds until it finally came to a stop. So he pulled over to pick it up and realized that it was a tomato. Now, the tomato obviously was as hard as a rock or a, a baseball. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he did his. He was an investigative reporter, so he did a whole inquiry about this, and he learned that basically the entire ninety percent of the commercial tomato industry in the U.S. is run by about four to six families in Florida. So it's tightly controlled. That's scary. Grown in sand. But when he got a hold of the quality control specs on how tomatoes have to be grown for shipping and everything, on that list of conditions, there were all these things about shape and size and da blah, blah, not one mention of flavor. Flavor and, doesn't even factor into it. And, and that's why we have so many flavorless tomatoes out there. Yeah. Well, and, and the fact that they grow them, they pick them green, and then they gas them. Oh, yeah. You know, and I can't, I can't think that that's really healthy for us either. If we're eating food that's been gassed compared to um, things that have been grown naturally. Well, it's, it's a reason why so many people are re- returning back to learning how to grow their own food. You know, they're interested in food. They're foodies. They love to go to restaurants and enjoy the flavors that the chefs prepare because it's locally sourced and in season. Uh, and, and thankfully, enough of these people are wanting to learn how to do it themselves. And that's where it starts. And that's where we try to help make the link is to help make them feel like it's not an intimidating process. Just don't start too big too fast. Yeah, well, well, and that's the whole big thing. And people still have the weird idea that in order to grow food that you have to have acres. Not at all. But you've seen some amazing stuff in the cities. I've, I've seen some of your shows. Yeah. Where, uh, and what the ter- term now is foodscaping? Yeah, foodscaping. Now tell people what that is. Well, uh, so foodscaping is the, um, is the notion that we have to debunk the belief that uh, has been rampant forever that vegetable gardens can't be pretty. And so um, people, you know, especially these younger folks that are moving into urban neighborhoods, you know, they want a pretty front yard, but they're really into food. But space is limited, right? And mm-hmm. sometimes the only sunny space you have is in the front yard. So in order to not tick off your neighbors but still have an ex- uh, the ability to grow fresh food, they've found that they can grow edible plants mixed amongst their ornamentals in a way that's very pleasing. So hence foodscaping. Roz Creasy, 35 years ago, was sort of the, the pathfinder for creating I remember her first edible, edible, gar- edible landscaping book. Uh, and thanks to her work and her books and her lectures and her writing, you know, it's, it's, it's caught on a lot. And today it's a, t- a commonly used term and a lot more people are doing it than ever. If folks are not familiar with Roz Creasy, run, do not walk, <laughs> to your local library or your local bookstore and get a copy of some of her books. Oh, yeah. She, it's food porn. <laughs> I mean, when she is when she is showing pictures of the vegetable that she's she's grown, I mean, it, it just is so incredible. Yeah. One of the, we mentioned, gar, you were just back from Garden Writers Association. I attended one Garden Writers Association meeting where she let me look through her lens at the vegetables that she was photographing. Mm-hmm. And just the way she looks at things and sees things 
and lines up that shot. It is so incredibly gorgeous. So there is a way for people. Um, so tell me, what are, are people growing fruit trees that you're seeing? Or, well, yes. Or what are in they? fact, thank you for asking that because I have a personal interest in helping people or wanting to encourage people to not stop at just produce, you know. Fruits, great. Let's just, you know, keep working it. And then the natural transition then is to start, you know, maybe blueberries or raspberries or blackberries and then go into the pear trees or the apple trees. And, you know, yes, there are some new challenges when you start picking up fruit trees and trying to maintain them in a healthy way, especially organically. But it doesn't mean you shouldn't try it. And there are ways that to do it. And there's varieties that are stay small and are more pest and disease resistant. So part of you know my personal mission through the show is to help people understand that they don't have to you know feel like they're limited to just you know tomatoes and squash and beans. You know you can. Blueberries make a wonderful hedge. Yeah, they are they're fantastic. They have gorgeous red fall color. They have beautiful flowers on them in the spring. The foliage is is, is blue green. Amazing. What's and then you get the blue fruit, or yeah. sometimes now there's a variety with pink, pink fruit too. Yeah, and all and these all can grow in containers. That's the other beauty of to this. You don't need a big farm space or an acre or a quarter acre. Everything can grow in a container. My vegetable garden pretty much is limited to containers in my driveway mm-hmm. because that's where I have the space right. and the containers are big enough yeah. so I don't have to bend over too far, which has gotten to be a problem. Yeah. And even I was able to grow enough food this summer, even with horrible conditions mm-hmm. that we've had. I've put food in the freezer, and yesterday I was able to bring a, a flat of tomatoes get a flat of tomatoes to the food bank. Yeah, good for it you. It is possible to do it in a limited area. Um Every place in the country. Well, and, and the nice thing about containers, uh, you know, you can control the soil. You can control the drainage. You make it more accessible. As you mentioned, it's easier to sometimes get to and harvest. And uh, it can be very decorative, you know, because the container adds another layer to your mm-hmm. landscape. And you can put it into places that maybe otherwise you could be growing something. Uh, it's it's just and if it's in its ugly stage, you can hide it behind a bush. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the other thing. I like the portability of it. Um, one of the things that I've seen lately is a big trend toward espaliered fruit trees. Mm-hmm. These, for those that don't know the term, it's a you flatten the tree out so it takes up a very small amount of space, and you train the tree's limbs horizontally, and they're absolutely gorgeous. Very ornamental. I don't know why anybody would want to grow a pom-pom or a poodle shrub or poodle juniper when they can have an apple tree. Yeah. One of the first things that I did when we moved in was to plant fruit trees. Before I did anything else, I figured, you know, the apples bloom in the springtime. They're gorgeous. Mm -hmm. Why plant a flowering cherry when I can have a fruiting cherry? Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned, there's some challenges with that, especially here in Georgia because our climate is bad. But for our listeners... Elsewhere in the country, Midwest is great fruit-growing country. Northeast is great fruit-growing country without doing the extra level of fussing. I would say even if it's a beginner, give it a shot. Well, and, and you know, we just – another place we got, we got back from New York again, uh, our last trip, in fact. And one of the men we visited, uh, he's written an awesome book called Holistic Orchards. And he specializes in growing apple trees organically. And he's – pretty much perfected techniques to manage pests and diseases without using any you know synthetics at all through this type of mulch that he uses and just understanding the life cycle of the likely pest and finding their vulnerability and taking them out at that point and uh you know he's written all about it but it's something that doesn't just work in new york you know it can work all over the country 
You'll have to get me at the name of that book, and I will put it up on our Facebook page okay. because I'm sure we've got listeners that want to oh. know about that. Yeah. Because fruit growing is a challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, some fruits like raspberries and blueberries are generally a little easier. Yeah. Pears are easier than apples, right. especially if you're the Asian pears are relatively pest-free. Um, it's really sometimes the peaches and the cherries which is kind of funny. Georgia is the peach state, yeah. but we don't have really Supposedly. good peach growing conditions. Right. Um, and, and the spray, you know, peaches are one of those things that next to foreign grown grapes are the most heavily sprayed. And that's a shame because, of course, you want to eat the fresh fruit. And I got to get some peaches the other day that I swear smelled like orthene. <laughs> um, I, it was just, no. I, I was sniffing them at the store and I, before I even finished my, filling my bag of peaches, I just put them all down. I don't care what the sale is. Right. If they're going to smell like pesticides, they're not coming in my house. Yeah, part of the dirty dozen. Yeah, and so fruit tree growing is something that people can do, and it's ornamental. It can go right out in the front yard. And I understand that in Seattle, you mentioned Seattle a couple mm-hmm. of times, is I think it's in Seattle where they are doing forest farming yep. too. Yeah. Tell me, have you seen those the, the fruit trees that they're planting right in the woods and the parks and everything? Yeah, we haven't. We, we're looking into doing a show for that next season, but uh, they're um, they're making fruit trees more accessible to the general public so that people can go forage in common spaces, you know, not private backyards. And and on that note, also in Seattle and I think Portland, one of the two, uh, there for there are groups that are foraging. Um, private yards because you know sometimes these fruit trees are so prolific mm-hmm. that the people that live there can only eat so much and then you have all this extra fruit that either falls to the ground or rots or never gets utilized so these young groups and this is what i love and this is a story we are doing later this year they go in with permission from the homeowner and they harvest all the excess produce and then they donate it to the food pantries in the area and it doesn't go wasted that's fantastic. And I, I read someplace that there was a group, I think it's in L.A., that has made a map, a neighborhood map, where uh-huh. where food can be found and where people are, welcome, are, are welcoming others to come and harvest. Yes. And, and the modern subdivisions today are also putting in common community orchards for the purposes of inviting people that live in the community to source that. I think that's a great idea. Yeah. And community gardens, they've got all the green space. In some um, areas, the gardens, the, the community has to, the developer has to leave open space, green space around it, um, some area that's not developed. And I always thought it was just such a waste not to use it. Mm. Uh, in one of the areas not too far away from me, there was a community that had a wonderful open space. Uh, somebody decided to put in some raised beds there. The, gar- the people were having a great time with it. Um, the properties in general went into foreclosure. The bank said, no, you have to bulldoze it. Mm. That just doesn't seem to make any kind of common sense to me. So, Joe, where do you, where you said you're going back to New York this next? Seattle is our next trip. Uh, and we're doing, so we're doing the show on the young uh, urban farm chicks and we're doing a show on um, the seed alliance or the organic seed alliance. Oh, because of the importance that there is more than ever on seed saving, uh, heirloom and organic seeds to make sure that we protect the seed strains that are being modified so much these days. You know, when you're getting your hands on it from Monsanto and these other places, 
Well, the Organic Seed Alliance is a, is a great organization, and so we're going to go talk about you know why they exist, the the importance of the work that they do, and why we need to you know try to do the same. Now, I'm familiar with the Seed Savers mm-hmm. Association, mm-hmm. Um, and I've, of course, I've gotten seeds from there and in years past when i had a bigger garden i i gave back through that group or sold back through that group too but this sounds like something that i haven't heard of similar but different you know the seed savers exchange is always looking for um sourcing heirloom varieties of pretty much anything and then they they food bank it you know they they test the viability of the seeds they food bank it they grow out new seeds when the supply is running low organic seed alliance uh in my understanding, the primary emphasis is on um, promoting and reproducing protected organic seed varieties so Great. that we don't lose them. We have to take a break right uh-huh. now, uh, but we'll be right back with America's Homegrown Veggie Show right after this. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning at 8 a.m. and listen to The Doctor's Lounge, where you get a private insight into the conversations that doctors have amongst themselves. Join us Thursday, 8 a.m. every week. This is Michael Gano with Insight to Israel. Every day, the Israeli Defense Force finds itself on the front line of the war with the militant arm of Islam. Surrounded by enemies from within and without, they fight for the only Jewish state. Military service is mandatory, ladies serving two years and men serving three right out of high school. While young people in other democracies are busy traveling or attending university, Israeli men and women gear up for basic training. In a world of heads of state, politicians, ambassadors, diplomats, and a leftist media, many times our voice at the grassroots level is drowned out. So we started an ongoing project called Hershey's for Heroes. Patriot conservatives from all over the U.S. are sending Hershey's chocolate bars with a note of thanks for defending Israel. Won't you join us by sending a sweet message to the IDF? For information, please see my Facebook page at Michael Gano. Thank you, God bless Patriot conservatives, and God bless Israel in her struggle for sovereignty and security. Quick Stakes, that's Q-U-I-K Stakes, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Stakes, Q-U-I-K Stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm the host, Daryl Pullis, and I'm here with Joe Lample from Growing a Greener World TV. And right before the break, we were talking about a seed alliance that is preserving the heirloom seed varieties. Mm-hmm. And Joe, I want to just do you do you save your own seeds? I do. I am a big fan of saving my own seeds, uh, particular for the tomatoes that I like. Mm-hmm. And back when I had a large garden, I did you know cups and cups full of seeds. And for those of you that haven't done it, it's really fairly easy. You take a mature tomato, you you can you can eat the rest of the tomato too. You just <laughs> squeeze out the seeds, cut it in half, squeeze out the seeds into a cup. If it's not a really juicy tomato, add just a little bit of water. Um, go ahead and eat your tomato, and then um, 
put a cheesecloth or something like that over the cup. That's really important because it does stink after a while Mm -hmm. because the purpose of doing it that way is you want the seed and the pulp to ferment a little bit because it kills the diseases and it separates the seeds out so you don't have bits of of pulp Mm -hmm. in there with it. And the fruit flies will find it. And and if you have a spare room in your house that you don't go into, that's an even better idea to place it because it will smell worse than a wet dog after a couple of days. Kind of cross between wet dog and um, vinegar, maybe. I I, I put mine in a mason jar and put a lid on it. And then oh. I shake it periodically, like a couple times a day. I was I was taught that you should leave the lid open for mm. ben- better ventilation. Ah. Um, the late Chuck Wyatt saved and grew out usually about 400 varieties of tomato every wow. year. And he was the one that taught me and said, you know, just put a cheesecloth or something over it to keep the fruit flies out, but let the mixture let breathe. The and then every day, every time you go past it, you know, give it a shake. Oh, yeah. And once you see the seeds all fall down to the bottom... Yep. Then you can carefully decant it, pour off the smelly stuff, mm-hmm. and then rinse the seeds really well, and then shake them out onto a paper plate. Yeah. And al- here's a trick that I learned from Chuck. Always label your paper plate before you set the seeds on it, because you're going to forget. Oh, good plan. I am, I am really good at forgetting. Yeah. And use a regular uncoated paper plate. because it dr- or a you coffee yeah. filter. You can use a coffee filter, too, if, if you like. Um, I find that the coffee filters are more likely to blow around oh, well, that's true. than a paper plate is. Uh-huh. But, you know, it depends on how many you're growing and whether right. you run fans in your house and whether you have nine cats running around um, or dogs with tails knocking them off. Yeah. And then once the seeds are completely dry, you can put them in a, an envelope. I like those little... Uh, envelopes that they used to sell, or that well, they still sell in the office supply stores for change. Oh. They're about maybe two by three. They're oh, made of Manila. Size. I didn't know you could get those. Oh yeah, you get them. Uh, you can get a whole big box, and you can label them. And if you have lots, if you want to sh- share oh, them around yeah. to your friend, you can print out labels on your computer and stick it on there. Nice. And then package them up. And then I always like to save my seed over the winter time. In a big mason jar with those little silica gel, yes. ca- you know, that comes Boxing in all your camera equipment yes, yes, and, yes. and just about everything that you buy it has silica gel packets. Right. And if you don't have that, did you know that you can use powdered milk? No, I did not know that. Yeah, you can take a little bit of powdered milk fresh out of the container, wrap it up in like a, a hanky or a Kleenex or something right. like that, and that will help absorb the moisture. Now, do you put yours in the fridge and, and store And then I put mm-hmm. mine in the refrigerator, yeah. Living here in Georgia, with the humidity right. is so fierce. I've got a friend out in Washington State that can just leave them, and, and another yeah. in California that can just leave them in their cupboard. Yeah. But for me, it lasts long. And since I don't grow out every variety every year, it may be six or seven years later mm-hmm. when I grow a variety, and I want those seeds to be fresh. Well, another thing about saving your own seeds, besides the fact that it's fun, is that even when you buy seeds... You don't always. You're not guaranteed that you're going to get the strain that you think you're going to get. Yes, and and the strain that you get may not be as adapt well adapted mm-hmm. to your area as possible. And sometimes, you know, bees, their bees are philandering. Sometimes mm. they just go around from one to another. And most growers that grow for saving seed will separate their plants by a good bit. Yeah. But every now and then, you do get a rogue seed. I got a batch of Sasha's Altai seeds this year that are not true to type. Yeah. Um, which, since that's my favorite variety, that was a, a real big disappointment. So I'm going to get a different from a different seed source next year, and I'm going to go back to saving my seeds. 
it happens more often than you think. You know, I don't know why it's to be so difficult, but you know, frankly, one tomato seed looks like another. So I can see how it happens, but you would think companies that are selling you seeds would take more precaution in mixing them up. Most of the time they do. If they're reputable, they do. Um, sometimes they there's a big demand now for heirloom seeds, yeah. and a lot of the companies are, especially the bigger companies, are sourcing them from private growers, right. and sometimes not even in this country. Exactly. And so that's one reason I would yes. prefer to grow from an or- buy seeds from an organization like Seed Savers Exchange where you can contact the grower. Or there is a lady called Tatiana. Are you familiar with Tatiana's tomato base? Mm-hmm. She has this huge database of thousands of tomato varieties mm. and you get you've got to i'll send you i'll okay. put the link up for this on the facebook page too for america's homegrown veggie show um and she also sells seeds and there there's a whole network of tomato seed growers in particular that she works with and knows exactly and when you look at her data database she will tell you the size of the tomato she will tell you oh uh, the color any other characteristics like whether it's potato leaf or regular leaf who where she got the seed from initially mm-hmm. you know so you have all that information right there thank god for people like that yes <laughs> and she started this just as a labor of love because she loves tomatoes and um, so there are sources out there that you can get one. But even from reputable sources, every now and then something happens. Mm-hmm. I had some wonderful yellow cherry tomatoes that I had grown for years. And then one year it just crossed. And, of course, that was the year that the mice got into my seeds. And that was it. That was when I started putting all my seeds in the refrigerator yeah. after that, too. Because when mice get it. And the funny thing happened, the guy that developed that strain of tomatoes also lost his to mice how about that in the same year i don't know what a coincidence that could be um now we talk about people do you find in your travels that some people are afraid to grow from seed not are they getting over that now well i think they're getting over it um and yet you know you find a lot of people that are um in such a hurry, and they want you know instant gratification that they skip the seed growing part and they go straight to the seedlings. But I I tend to do both, you know, because I I love starting plants from seeds. I love saving the seeds. But then, you know, if I'm in a hurry or I haven't had a chance to set up my growing system for the you know in February, I end up buying most of my plants as seedlings. You know, it just depends on the year. Yeah, I I try to always grow my own. I'm not adverse to getting, you know, to swapping plants with other people, too. Um, I also grow seeds to support the mission fund at my church. So I grow out about 400 seeds, uh, uh, plants a year, all under lights in my utility room Hmm. next to the washer and dryer. And last year it was, year before last, it was with a litter of kittens in there, too. Um, But growing from seed is so easy. And it's fun. That was that little hairpin. You have that the seed in the soil, and then you have this little hairpin come yeah. up. And then you go in there a couple hours later, and it goes, boing, yeah. and you get to see two leaves coming. Do you find yourself walking by your seed trays like multiple times in the day and looking to see if you've noticed Well, of it? course. Yeah, it's addictive, of course. isn't it? Especially when you're growing things like tomatoes that are so rewarding mm-hmm. or peppers that are so slow. 
One of the fun things that I grew was not a vegetable, but I had a mixed package of cactus seeds. And if you ever want to have a blast with that, particularly if you have a pet, sow some mixed cactus seeds. You know, you surface sow them, uh, you know, basically with just a little bit of sand over Uh them. And when they pop, they fling their seed caps off. Really? I was, I didn't know this until I was sitting up in our apartment one night. I was, you know, this was years and years back. And I had them under seat, under the grow lights, under the, my, you know, simple shop lights that I use. And I kept hearing these little pings. And oh, the no. dog kept going berserk. Oh, and I finally figured it out that it was these cactus seedlings that were throwing their seed coat. And, of course, they'd hit the metal pan and everything wow. like that. Now, you mentioned uh, when we were talking before, you had said something about meeting a plant person that plant propagates plants. Yes. i got to know about this person. Um, and is this a show that Brie you're Arthur, doing? Arthur, yes. Uh, she lives in Raleigh, or near Raleigh. She's 35. She's one of the most respected plant propagators in the country, and possibly the world. And the beauty of it is that she's female, she's very young, totally passionate about plants. She... She knows botanical Latin better than the English language. She'll, I mean, it just rolls <laughs> off her mouth. And, and so we had a chance to film an episode with her a couple weeks ago. And um, the feedback already, you know, it's, the episode's not public yet. It's just been internal with our production staff and our, our review crew. And then we shipped it off to UNC TV for review. And everyone that's seen the show, which is, you know, just a handful of people, but they're very professional in what they see and the experience they've had, um, has commented to not only her um, her ability to communicate and you know hold your attention, but just her on-camera presence. So we've got somebody in Bree that's not only highly educated, passionate about plants, and uh, able to impact this younger generation, but she's also able to communicate it through media, and especially on television, which is very exciting for us because this is going to open up a whole new door for people that you know don't even know about this part of gardening or horticulture and now they're going to realize that they can make more plants and they can propagate nearly anything just because the way Brie made it look so simple. Now of course there's a lot of science to it but it's not as complicated as I think most people think and so I'm so excited about this episode and I can't wait for people to see it because I just think it's unique I don't, I've never seen an episode like it and uh, I think we found a real star And what did you say her name is? Brie Arthur Brie Arthur. Yeah. Okay. We'll be looking for that one. Now, does she do fruit plants or? She can do oh. anything. She oh, can do. Oh, her oh. heart is in woody ornamentals. Aha. Uh-huh. Especially southern heritage plants like camellia. That's mm-hmm. her true specialty, if you had to name one thing. But uh, people source her out to propagate because she can do it when no one else can. There are, there are a lot of plants that... Even among the same variety of plants, like roses. Some roses are really easy. The My neighbor used to just take a couple of sticks and stick them underneath a rose bush yeah. and put a fruit jar over the top of them, uh-huh. and they would root. Yeah. Not all roses are that easy to root, though. Some will just make you crazy trying. Yeah. And some fruits, like figs, are easy peasy mm-hmm. to root. Mm-hmm. I, I, I love rooting fig trees and, and giving them away to people. Um, but... Apples are a little, a little tougher. I yeah. end up grafting grafting, grafting apples to ro- different rootstocks. But to me, that's exciting. That's you know, that's just a one more layer and dimension to gardening that you know you don't maybe start off with, but you get there, and it's just that's why to me gardening never gets boring. You know, 
you think you've done it and there's something new to do. That is absolutely true. That's, you know, I've been gardening for more than 60 years, Joe, and I learn something new every day. There's always something that I haven't heard of, somebody that I haven't heard of. And we're going to come back and talk about more gardens and gardeners. And I want you to share one of your favorite recipes with me, too, oh, okay. when we come back okay. from after this break. We'll be right back. Okay. Hello, I'm Ray Bowman, and I'm really looking forward to our new show, Food and Farm, brought to you every Friday at noon on America's Web Radio by FeedSubsFoodLink.com. Quick Stakes. That's Q-U-I-K steaks are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quicksteak.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of quick steaks. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's quick steaks, Q-U-I-K steaks, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. Hi, I'm Paisley McDonald, and I'd like to invite you to listen to my show, At Home with Paisley, every week, Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern, for practical advice and stylish living for your home and office. Do your children know where their food comes from? At ConnectingFarmToFork.com, there's all kinds of ways to help your child understand how 300 million of us here in America stay nourished, clothed, and healthy. Activities, food facts, and farm visits help young people learn about America's hardworking farmers and have lots of fun doing it. Visit ConnectingFarmToFork.com today for a learning experience that will really grow on you. ConnectingFarmToFork.com, brought to you by the people who care at Feedstuff's Food Link. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings for Medicine on Call and participate in a lively conversation. Learn what's happening behind the headlines in medicine. Understand Obamacare and learn how to protect yourself and navigate the system. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and we're here with Joe Lample from Growing a Greener World TV. And we've been all over the place with different topics because Joe is all over the place. Uh, we were just talking about somebody that does plant propagation. And Joe, have you? what did you start with? What was the first thing that you grew? Funny you should ask. It was plant propagation <laughs> by accident. I was an accidental gardener. But God, thank God it, it happened the way it did. I grew up in Miami, and everything's very you know, mm-hmm. willing to grow down there. The conditions are fantastic for that. But I broke a branch off of one of my dad's shrubs. And he, you know, wasn't a gardener, but he was. He liked a tidy landscape. And I didn't want to get in trouble for this, so I took it and stuck it in the ground next to the plant to cover my tracks, you know. So I, had, <laughs> I mounted up the soil around it and went about my way. And, you know, six, eight weeks later, I went back by that and uh, totally expecting to see it dead, right? Mm-hmm. But... I noticed new growth coming out of the branch, and I thought, what the heck? So I gave a little tug on it, and it resisted a bit. And so that truly was the defining moment for me where I say I was hooked on horticulture. So from there, I started propagating more plants, and I've never looked back. Oh, that, that's a great story. Yeah. From, you know, what if George Washington had done that instead <laughs> of telling his dad <laughs> when he got down that cherry tree? Yeah, you I never wonder know. if he would have been a horticulturist. Well, actually, I guess he was. He was fascinated by plants, and Jefferson oh, was too. Thomas Jefferson, my hero. 
and we've done a show up there at Monticello, and we're going back in three weeks to to do a follow up episode there. But you know, he was truly one of the first true organic gardeners in the fact that you know synthetic chemicals really weren't around at that point. But he really understood the value of building soil health and fertility through manure and organic amendments. He really got that. Plus, he was an avid note-taker, and he traded plants with people all around the world, and he was a propagator. I mean, he was a, he was a renaissance man, of course, but his passion, or at least one of his main passions, was in the garden. And he'd sow a, he'd sow a thimble of lettuce seed every week, so he would have successive plantings and fresh lettuce all through the year. That's a really smart thing for gardeners today to do, just mm-hmm. a little tiny bit of seed yeah. every week, because lettuce, when it gets old, it right. gets really hot and nasty, and yeah. just you, know, you don't want to eat that. Yeah. One of the things that fast fascinated me about Jefferson's gardens was the number of devices that he used to protect plants to get an early start to have lettuce in the winter mm-hmm. and to have the earliest melons. Yeah. And and that was in the day when you didn't have extra early melon varieties either. Um, next week's guest is Lynn Pugh from Cane Creek Farm, and she does, she it's a CSA, Community Supported Agriculture, and we're going to be talking a lot about protecting plants over the winter. So for those of you that are have an interest in doing that, a lot of people don't know that you can have food in the winter. Huh, until they learn about Elliot Coleman, who gardens year-round in Maine. And, and uh, you know, he's the, he's the preeminent four-season gardener. And if he can do it in Maine and replicate South Georgia climates in the middle of dead of winter up there, there's no reason why we can't be doing it anywhere else in the country. What are you doing in your garden this weekend? I am planting my fall crops. What, do, what have you got? Well, I've got my peas already started. I've got some of my brassicas going. Uh, I'm going to pick up some... Uh, so more, a lot more lettuce today, and uh, I love broccoli, so I'll have lots of broccoli. And so I'm clearing out my summer crops. I'm really kind of over them now. Summer crops are pretty much coming out. I'll cut back some tomatoes and see if I can get a second flush and fruiting in time. Uh, but for the most part, I'm focused on the fall garden now. When I saw your garden, it was you had a real problem with mildew and your yeah, melons. I did. Did anything save them, or were they too Nothing, far gone? No, they were pretty far gone. So I was able to harvest what was already on there mm-hmm. successfully, but I didn't have any new production. I ended up ripping them out a few days after you left. But the problem is, we didn't get on top of that before we got the mildew. And once the mildew's there, it's you know you can't really control it. You got to do it as a preventative. And I use milk and water as my yeah. as my preventative. I'm amazed by how many people are using milk and water instead of dacanil and some of the other toxic fungicides and how well it's working. Mm-hmm. I had a friend that, that tried it, and she found that it was working just as well as the dacanil. She, and she started the, them both at the same time. She got it kept ahead of it, and that's the key, to yeah. let that milk form a barrier to keep the mildew from right. sitting its little hyphae into the leaves. Right. Um, now, you said you're growing lettuce, and you're going to do spinach? I, am, I love to do spinach, yes. How about Brussels sprouts? I will do Brussels sprouts. You know, I always used to hate Brussels sprouts mm, until I started growing them myself. Yes. And... One of the reasons I hated them was because everybody boiled them to death. And they were mushy green balls. Yeah. yeah. And now people oh. roast them, and they're Saute so much. Saute them, and they're crunchy, yes. and a little bacon. Everything's better <laughs> with bacon, right? Oh, my gosh. Yes. Olive oil, salt, and pepper. That's it. And and they're so easy to grow. Yeah. They are so easy. And they're tough as nails. And, and, and frost, they laugh at frost, and they're even better after it. I, I grew them up in New Jersey, and... 
even after the snow had been on them. Mm-hmm. You know, the ones that were out from under the top of the snow, you know, they, they got pretty badly burned because you know, it was well well below zero. But the ones that were under the snow, as soon as the snow melted, they were just perfect. And they look like little trees, too. They're kind of they fun do. in the garden. They do, and they yeah. don't take up very much space. Uh-uh. They're very upright plants. Yeah. And if I don't know if, you're, if our listeners have grown Brussels sprouts before, but they can get as tall, pretty much as tall as you want giant. to. Giant, they can get giant if you get the right variety. Mine were like four feet tall, uh-huh, right. and and just kept producing and producing and producing. They're tidy little plants too, because it's all right there on the stem, you know. Yeah, there, and there's you pull no the lower big, leaves off. Yeah, there's there's no big mess or anything uh-huh. like that. So. And they're easy to grow from seed. Yeah. Now, are you growing? You mentioned you're growing your brassicas. Are you starting those from seed this weekend? Or I did, did start some from seed, but I am in a hurry because I've got people touring my garden in a month, and they uh-huh. got to have something to see. <laughs> so I need a little head start. So I'll be picking up some seedlings too. Yeah. Today, I, I hope you can find them out there. I, well, I, I haven't seen them yet. Yeah, I was wondering about that. I, I got to do my recon trip on the way home. Yeah. I like to, when I start seeds, you know, next week here in Georgia is supposed to be the hottest week of the summer. Nice. We're supposed to be over the, nine, you know, in well into the 90s for a solid week. Um, and for those of you in climates that it's still hot, but you need to get your seeds started soon, just start them indoors. Mm-hmm. Start them, or if you want to start them in the garden, wet the row down and then put a board over top of it yeah. or a burlap sack. Right, that's burlap is good. Because a burlap sack or even an old piece of, um, an old kitchen towel or something like that that yeah. you don't like anymore. Yeah. And then you can just wet it down and the yeah. evaporation will keep it a lot cooler and you've got a better chance of growing seeds. I love using burlap, it's so easy. Yeah, but burlap's getting kind of hard to find now. Well, you, or, or, uh, but you can buy it. You know, you can buy it at these craft stores by the bulk. Right? Yeah. You call it the bolt, the bolt. The bolt, sure. The bowl. Not the cheapest way, but uh, that's how we found it in bulk. Yeah, it's certainly not the same as it was when no. we could just get an old feed coffee. sack or, yeah, or coffee, coffee sack or something things. like that. Now, Joe, when we were talking about the show earlier, um, yesterday when we were emailing back and forth, I asked you about a recipe yeah. that you had. Oh, my gosh. And you, I had never seen this recipe before. I would never have considered the recipe before, but I watched the show. And, yes, I'll put a clip. Oh, you up, watched it? Up, up, yeah, I yeah. watched it, and I will put the website up on America's Homegrown Veggie Show Facebook page mm. for people to see it because they got to see how easy this is. Tell and, me about it. Okay, so Chef Rich Lando of Veg Restaurant in Philadelphia, named the top chef in Philadelphia, uh, has a vegetarian restaurant. You, you know, the waiting list to go to that restaurant is months. And uh, he, we had him as a guest in Philadelphia in one of our shows, and he whipped up this dish in minutes that could not be easier to make, and it could not be more delicious. And I say that because the, the main ingredient in it is zucchini, and I'm admittedly not a huge zucchini fan. I heard that on the show, and I just cracked up. Well, he even asked me off camera. He said, really? So you're not into zucchini that much? Because he couldn't believe it. But I said in the show, after I had his dish, you made me a believer. So in essence, what, what this is is um, a pesto, and you put it over zucchini, and you saute the zucchini. But just quickly how this works is you, uh, you mix equal parts of basil, and cherry tomatoes and golden tomatoes. You, you, first of all, you saute the tomatoes, cut them in half, and to scald the skin a little bit with two cloves of garlic, olive oil, salt, and pepper. You just get that on the on the pan for a couple minutes. Then you put it into a blender with about an equal amount of basil, and then put in just enough olive oil to coat it. Right. Add a little more salt and pepper, and then you pulse pulse the ingredients in the blender. 
And there was a, another surprise ingredient in there, too. Instead of oh, pine nuts, um, all, you uh, used toasted almonds. Toasted almonds to give yeah. a little that nutty flavor. Yeah, I, I wouldn't have thought about that, but right. it, it just looked amazing. Right. Well, apparently this is the Sicilian version of pesto where they use almonds versus pine nuts is what he th- I think he said in the show. I, that's what I, I understood right. him to say. So you just toast the almonds, do toast the garlic them, yeah. just a little bit. With the tomatoes. And the you just want to blister the skin of the blister tomato. the t- skin. And, and you eat the skin. You don't just toss it away. You, it you all goes in. in the blender. Right. And, it, and that adds a little bit of texture. So you want that, you know, a little meatiness to it. Along with even, he said it's okay to put some of the stems of the basil in because it gives a little more body to the pesto. And I was really intrigued watching the show how he twisted the basil off so that just a little bit of the stem but not that really heavy woody stem was in there. Right. And there, and there wasn't any cheese in the, in the mix either. But then you, you pour it onto um, basically dollars, little thin slices of the zucchini. And you put it into a pan, and you just kind of fill the bottom of the pan, and you put it in an oven for seven to eight minutes at 350, and you take it out. And there was enough oil left in mm-hmm. the pan from sautéing the oh. tomatoes and the garlic and the almonds so that you, the, the zucchini didn't stick on the bottom. Mm-mm. And the zucchini didn't end up zucchini mush. Cause it was not. It was one of the things that I don't like about zucchini is a lot of times people just cook it to death, and yeah. it's just... It's nasty. It's it's kind of like that boiled spinach that they made us eat at school. Yeah, you know the the stuff that they would glop on your plate and all the green water. Oh, it's disgusting. <laughs> but this was such such a delicious flavor combination because the the zucchini dollar size slices gave it some body, mm-hmm. and and it was almost like the meat. You know what the meat would be. Sure. And then the pesto's on top, and the blending of those flavors, and the seasoning, and the freshness of the basil was. Uh, uh, I mean, I'm, right now, as I just talk about my mouth is watering, <laughs> I want to go home and make it. Well, we've got we pass a couple of farmers markets on the way home. Right. If you, if your zucchini isn't doing, we're about to the end of the show for today. But I want to remind everybody that we do have a Facebook page, and I will post all this information, all the links that, to Joe's show and and the books that he mentioned. And next week's guest is going to be Lynn Pugh from Cane Creek Farm. And we're going to be talking about fall planting, winter harvesting, organic growing. And I would like to remind you that if you have a gardening question or a topic that you would like to see covered, please let us know. You can email through the radio station, America's Web Radio, or through our Facebook page, America's Homegrown Veggie Show. Thank you for listening, and I hope we'll, you'll be back with us next week. And thank you, Joe. I've been had it just such a great time me with you too. today. Me too. Me too, Daryl. Thanks for having me. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.